Hello and welcome to episode 310 of the Crate and Crowbar. It is the 29th of January 2020. My name is Chris Thurston and joining me this evening is Marsh Davies. Hello. And Tom Senior. Hello. Hello and welcome uh, to Video Games News. We've decided to do some news despite January's great efforts to uh, prevent this <laughs> from occurring. Um, but things have been announced and moved around and, and cancelled and in some cases uh, planned uh, in an unconvincing way. And we're going to get through all of those in something approxing, approxing, approximating some kind of order. I don't know. I'm not a journalist anymore. Don't do the news. Torchlight Frontiers, a game I forgot existed, is now Torchlight 3. Cool. Let's get a hot take. Oh, there we go. <laughs> How about a hot take from you there, Tom? Uh, I played this at a Gamescom or some sort of conference once, and it was mm. very much like Torchlight 2. <laughs> so yeah, so the, the top line here is, so this is not being developed by Runic, because Runic closed a while ago. Same people, though. Same people? Some of the same people, some of the same senior people have gone across. And yeah, Max some... Schaefer is still involved. It was going to be a free-to-play game, but I don't know what that means. Yeah, it's going to be all sorts of things. I mean, it was going to be an MMO once upon a time, and I still wonder if that's their, their ambition for it to be massively mm. online in some way. Um but what I played was very straightforward, fun, action RPG fair, much like Torchlight 1. Hmm. You can have a train? Can you now? So one of, I looked at their classes and one of the classes is like the Railmaster. Nice. And he pe- apparently just makes a train and like lays a train track through the level and that's... That's cool. That oh, seems cool. Because that's something you can send like goodies back on then. I think, no, I think it's a gun train. Oh, a gun train. Yeah, you yeah. Know, right, like, of course. Oh, I yeah. mean, I think, I think... It's interesting watching that kind of ARPG class kind of spectrum evolve. Like, what can a pet class be? What can the engineer turret building class mm. be? Mm-hmm. The next step, train. Pet train. I suppose. Nice. But yeah, so it's now formally become Torchlight 3 and it's becoming a premium thing. Which is kind of cool because I liked both Torchlight games. They were both very good. Yeah, yeah. I prefer premium. I do wonder how, because I mean, it's been going to be released this year, right? Uh, yes, that's the other thing. They said it'd be released this year. So, I believe, and this is also due to reaction they've gotten from alpha testers. Yeah. So people have obviously been playing it and telling them to, that they want to pay money for it, which is, I suppose, good. Mm. I mean, it's, in, it's an interesting decision to make this late in development because either it means that, uh, it was a, basically structured like a premium game all along and all its free to play widgets didn't sit very neatly on mm. it. Or it's going to be a super grindy, free-to-play feeling premium game. Right. Uh, those are the risks, anyway. Like, it's it's quite hard to to restructure your game at the last minute. I thought it was interesting because, obviously, like, this is a super healthy genre, but with not a lot of games in it, I would say. Like, because Path of Exile has done extremely well and continues to do extremely well. Right. Like, Diablo is still pretty popular as far as I understand it. Yeah, so I think, but the thing is, though, it's one of those genres where you only need one or two successful games to completely right. satisfy the entire market for mm-hmm. those games, I think. Mm. Like, Diablo just called, casts a huge shadow, doesn't it? I mean... It does. It does, certainly. But, like, that's what I mean by, you know, it's I'm interested in in the... the It's not only premium moving to Steam, like, what the... Maybe it's a sign that I'm becoming more interested in the business logic of that. But, mm. like, you know, maybe you're right that there's... Because there's a, uh, you know, uh, an obvious... Uh, premium, uh, titan in this particular genre and an obvious free one in this particular genre. Right. And that spans out also things like Warframe, I guess. Like if you want to click things and loot things and build up your character, there's a lot of ways to do that for free. The, 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 I, the decision for them to make a free to play game makes total sense to me. Yeah. As does the decision maybe to change that because you're more likely to get that nostalgia investment from people who love Torchlight and mm. maybe at that's this stage, that's the way you succeed is by delivering something that's a bit like what people used to like and then, 
you know, building from there. Yeah, Diablo's been out for ages as well. Like, mm. it really is pretty long in the tooth at this point. And yeah. I know they make a Diablo 4, but it's going to be ages until that's out, probably. So something that sort of slips in there, it's a bit of novelty with a bit of a brighter colour art style. Yeah. So it could find its niche. Yeah. Uh, seems nice. I wish it well. <laughs> Goodbye, little train. <laughs> <laughs> There's the take train pulling out of the station. Mm. Choo-choo. <laughs> Uh, I'd love. To, I would totally listen to a games podcast produced by the characters of Thomas the Tank Engine. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Percy? It's bollocks, said Percy. <laughs> but I get a Ringo Starr voice. <laughs> anyway, um, I was always an Ivor the Engine Man. Isn't mm, it? I think, yeah. 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 Ivor. <laughs> Wasn't there? A, was the the conductor called Die on that? I think thing? so. Die. There was a dragon. I can't remember what the dragon did. I remember did that the, eat soup or is that the clangers? I don't know. It's that's the, the soup dragon is the clangers. Mm-hmm. The, um, there was an episode, I think, that I, I watched a lot of Thomas the Tank Engine as a very young child, so it's sort of imprinted, but I can't differentiate episodes at all. But there's an episode where I think Percy the Tank Engine gets stuck in a tunnel that is, I think, you know, worthy territory for some kind of like, you know, uh, extreme wilderness survival horror kind of <laughs> scenario, as far as I'm concerned. That's the worst thing that can possibly happen to you. Have you seen the video in which um the uh, Thomas's face extrudes out of his tank like body as though he's like a parasitic worm living inside of this mm. mechanical vessel? <laughs> it's very good. It is very I mean I think modders have done a great deal of damage to Thomas the Tank. <laughs> yeah. Gary's mod Skyrim and sort of the source filmmaker community in general are responsible mm. for a great deal of damage to that particular beloved children's character. Like the Clangers didn't get that. You know what I mean? <laughs> Like, <laughs> since I remember Henry, who's the long green boy, mm. getting bricked into a tunnel. Mm. That's the one I'm thinking of. Essentially buried alive. Yeah, that's that's the horror, the Thomas the Tank Engine horror scenario yeah, that gets stuck pretty, in my brain. Horrendous. Yeah, that's like the opening sequence to a, a 90s slasher film, in yeah. which everybody's <laughs> killed mysteriously by a train. <laughs> <laughs> Don't go near the tracks. <laughs> <laughs> but if you go away from the tracks, there's nothing you can do. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Uh, and then, yeah, beat him by tricking him into jumping off a incomplete railway bridge or something. <laughs> <laughs> do we have as then impassioned that- takes about the other kind of PC gaming news? Oh, sorry, as, there as is, there is, there's a lot more news. I just, <laughs> I just got into this, like, Thomas the Tank Engine slasher AU we were, we were creating. Uh, to be honest, I was, I was getting kind of into that, but, um, Kentucky Route Zero mm. is now finished. Uh, act five has come out after seven years since the first act. Great. I'll probably play it at some point. I played the first act. Um, mm. apparently it still holds up. Cool. Now, which is I mean, good. It's a beautiful art style, so I wouldn't imagine it yeah. would date in that way. There was a, uh, an entertaining piece of Twitter controversy today where the, uh, the, the discourse not only welcomed Kentucky Route Zero with open arms and immediately poured petrol over itself and set itself alight screaming. Yeah. Um, but it was, uh, I mean, there's no point going into it, really, but, uh, it was a good, it, yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's just one of those examples of, of a Twitter community, or just, a, just a, an act of just flailing self-harm by a community who otherwise have fair, fairly shared sensibilities and likes, 
uh, that could only have possibly manifested on Twitter. Yeah. Well, people call Twitter an echo chamber, but I think more accurately, it's like a squash court. And like, <laughs> you send your little opinion out into the ether, and like, sometimes it's going to hit two walls the wrong way and come back and hit you in right in the stomach. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. This was someone who's complaining about it being another game about America, right? Which isn't really the game's fault. So, <laughs> no, but it's, it's also, it's a valid thing for him to feel. Yeah, like, right. the thing is, it's, it's just one of those things you're like, oh, well, it feels a bit unfair for you to bring it up about this game yes. which is you know if, 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 if well also but you know if there's ever going to be a game that is about america it might as well be this really really good introspective one you know right <laughs> as opposed to any given gta or yeah, something exactly yeah yeah it's so. the sort of thing you'd mutter across the pub table and it would just nothing would happen but for some reason posting it and publishing it on a blog site just makes it just invites everyone just to see yeah. the meanest take the mean have the meanest possible attitude towards it yeah throw away comment well it's because if you say something on twitter you seed reality with that like <laughs> yes. twitter is the kind of he actually damaged sales of kentucky Route Zero. <laughs> well yeah or, but also maybe change something that's true about the universe yeah <laughs> like whatever the kind of base blueprint for physics is but what like if opinions had physics the kind of fundamental laws would be established on twitter and the lack of rule is why everything is awful and no one knows what's real anymore mm. they were forced to change the name to kentucky Route Zero <laughs> as a result <laughs> so also, you double, you double down, never double down on Twitter, and it's, it looks, always looks impetuous. No, yeah. <laughs> just don't tweet, that's my just don't opinion. tweet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I just don't do it. Just don't do it. Well, I do do it, but only if I have an idea for a joke that I need to post, um, but no one will like. <laughs> <laughs> um, sort of bin. <laughs> yeah, it's like, there's, there's a, there is a perverse satisfaction to knowing this is going to get three likes. And getting three likes mm. that feels if that, that grounds you it makes you feel like you belong in the universe which is ever you know whose kind of walls are ever feeling less and less well it'll be defined thanks to social media regardless of our existential crisis uh duelist the card slash tactics mm. game is shutting down its servers forever um which is effectively because it's an online only game the end of the game and if you do not remember duelist this game came out in the year after hearthstone i think it was the mm. sort of it, there was a there was a, a uh, following sort of, maybe it was a bit later than that. There was like a, a trailing wave of like, uh, card games sprang up before, basically before the big companies mobilized to kind of try and capitalize on it with things like the Elder Scrolls Legends or Artifact or, or that kind of generation or now Legends of Rune Terror, which is, is, is coming out soon. There was this sort of wave of indie games. Like Allegens of Rune Terror. Legends of Rune Terror. Rune Terror. Rune Terror. Rune. Like Viking Room. Right, I got uh, you. Terra, like Terra Firma. Allergens of Room Terra was still a much better name. <laughs> <Yes>. Allergens. <laughs> Allergens of Room Temperature. <laughs> um, uh, but nonetheless, so like, du- I remember Duelist in this set of games. There was Card Hunter, which was in the same oh, sort oh, yeah. of space. Mm-hmm. There was a little bit later, the one whose name I've completely forgotten that was also quite good, but they're all quite good and the good art and things. And Duelist was definitely the one that got the, um, people most excited i think i remember a number of different critics kind of really really raving about it it was pretty good i think it was pretty good yeah uh, i played it a bunch when it came out and then stopped playing it and mm. that appears to have been its issue it's, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. not me specifically um mm. but just a waning player count leading to it uh now it's it being formally shuttered which is a huge shame because but kind of makes sense because without players who how it do and that's mm. the question isn't it mm. it don't it's the answer (laughs) I thought this was kind of interesting because um, people are still making these games 
I mean, we've just had a high-profile failure from like the biggest game company in the world. Mm. Uh, well, not the biggest company in the world, biggest games, you know, one of the biggest players in this sort of arena with Artifact, much as I loved it, being definitely a failure, kind of shows that a card game is not a safe bet by any stretch of the mm. imagination. And with more of them coming out, I kind of wonder, like, what that, how um sort of competitive that environment really is, or how open to competition it really is, particularly now that there's a good Magic the Gathering game. I feel like there's a design space that's described between actual magic and Hearthstone that is hard to navigate. You know what I mean? I've been enjoying some of the sort of single player spin-offs from the Hearthstone rush. Yeah. Um Slay the Spire is sort of a tangential one. Um also the Witcher, the Gwent game mm, is pretty good Breaker. as well. Thronebreaker, mm. which is a kind of Yeah, I like that. Just came out on Switch apparently. Yeah, that's right. So I mean those games have found a niche by just being single player rather than these kind of churning mm. multiplayer mm. um meta-driven uh, prospects. But I guess the real money is in that, that sort of meta. So, hang on. Are there single-player Hearthstone games? There is. I think there are, like, challenges and adventures as part of the expansions right. that you can Like, do. Card Hunter would be an example of a yeah. sing- predominantly single-player game that came yeah. out in the wake of this as well. Yeah. I think you're right there. I think, but I think it's interesting because um, the same thing sort of happens in physical card games as well. Like, um, this is sort of not quite video games news, but uh, recently there's been a lot of closures at Fantasy Flight Games. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and and the you know this is obviously the story of the last couple of years is that tabletop's getting bigger and bigger, and in many ways it is. Mm. But I mean, I'd be really interested to see to what extent that's returning. Um, to what extent there's space for new things to come along and be big in a in a you know an industry that is sort of seems completely split in terms of non-licensed stuff, split between magic and D and D. Yeah, like how do you come up with a card game that meaningfully competes with magic when Sunk cost means that most of the audience for this is um, already super deep invested in a game that has a massive design space and mm-hmm. loads of support. Yeah. Similarly, like the fact that, you know, Netrunner, which is arguably one of the best, if not the best card games ever designed, has been cancelled because it, presumably because it didn't generate enough money. Like Cancelled? Yeah, it, it died a couple of years ago now. Like it just, I mean, you, you can't, like they'll never make any more. You know, but people are still playing it. Right? People, yes, right. and that's the thing about a physical game, right? You can still play it and stuff. Right. But its so developers in, are not working on it. Oh, I see. So there's no evolution to it. Is that yes, there will right. never get be another expansion. There will never be a rules update or an FAQ or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a now set, a fixed thing. And therefore, no one's making any more money from it. So there's no sort of, mm. you know, there's limited incentive then. Uh, <coughs> it hurts shops as well because there's not new stuff for them to sell. They get people into the store, etc. Um, that affects support. The reason I bring it up is because I just, I've been thinking about this a lot, like whether or not it's possible to release a card game, a competitive card game, particularly one that's like booster pack driven or deck building driven and really compete. Like on, digitally are people just either super invested in Hearthstone or w- whatever game their choice is. And therefore it's just a hard sell to get super invested in anything really, or like an indie mm. equivalent it's kind of a, it's a question that will be pertinent to one of the games we talk about later, actually. But um, nonetheless, obviously, it's super shame. It's super. Sh- it's a super. It's a shame that that happened and that this has happened. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, the final bit of news that I wanted to read out uh, is a story titled on PCGamer.com titled uh, "Atari is building gaming hotels with the producer of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles film reboot." Uh, to summarize, that is the summary. Uh, Atari, um, uh, who you may know from such video games as Pac-Man and a big landfill, I think, um, <laughs> um, are doing a hotel or hotels in America. The, the concept art looks like a sort of 
you know, first great West, not first great Western, it's a train company. What am I thinking of? American hotel firm where business things always happen. Marriott. No, yeah. No, you know, the kind of Marriott it. business type kind of hmm. obelisk. Um, but, uh, with a big Atari logo on it, so it looks a little bit like a computer games console. And this is a place where you'll be able to go to play computer games, including on like a rooftop e lounge sort of experience. Um, there's not really much, very much more detail at that. Well, it'll be a fully immersive experience, presumably because it is real. <laughs> um, for every age and gaming ability, including the latest in VR and AR. Hmm. Um, which I can kind of see the, the value of a VR experience having a permanent venue. And maybe that's somewhere you live. At that point, isn't it a smaller Disneyland? Hmm. You know? Yeah, it's probably cheaper kind of, than Disneyland. Yeah, though. right. Um, you know. This, this, there's, um, there is something, uh, I think faintly, uh, ready player one-ish about the kind of positioning of this, you know, sort of like your VR hut where you kind of engage in some sort of, sort of yeah. digital holiday into beloved IP. And that makes me instinctively want to hate it, but really I don't feel anything. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it sounds like it's definitely, definitely going to fail. <laughs> well, I suppose my question beyond that, I don't really have question one is how, how does this make you feel? Uh, question two is, do you think it happened? Well, I mean, well. <laughs> <laughs> do it, like, I remember there's a place in Birmingham called the Omega Sector. Uh, <laughs> that uh, used to be a Virgin Megastore. And then, I don't know, sometimes money flows into strange ideas. When the gangers got in. <laughs> yeah, that's right. When the stimmers got in and uh, took over the place. And it was um, supposed to be uh, this sort of basic massive land palace where mm. uh you go to play starcraft and get online with these gaming pcs and stuff um and it was huge and they clearly just hadn't road tested the idea at all they just got right in on a massive piece of real estate in the center of birmingham quite a bit of cheap rental um and it was just really dark in there and it was every cliche of a kind of gamer bedroom oh god neon they're just like mm. camo netting around like, uh, draped over crates and mm. stuff like that <laughs> um army of two has been heavily advertised remember that game yeah <laughs> yeah um that kind of caliber of stuff that's not an aesthetic you want in, in a hotel it's, or, it's or building i used to go there just out of curiosity with, um, with friends and play could be heroes on land there and stuff when i gave me pieces of rubbish um but it was always faintly depressing and just do- clearly doomed from start to finish and yeah inevitably it shut about a year later and th- mm. it feels like atari hotels were destined for the same fate mm. um, though i'm desperately keen to go in and take lots of photographs so that you know i could do a twitter thread about it in 10 years time and say look at this wild thing that they made yeah. just shine a black light around that thing yeah. God. Mm. I, so that's to the to that point i don't know why this sounds sordid to me mm. there's nothing kind of inherently sordid about the concept well, maybe we'll be using other people's vr kits yeah thing, yeah i just have this image of like con center kind of mm. grimness like a vertical gamescom where you, that you can't leave because you sleep there <laughs> <laughs> mm. Mm. well every, every one of these spaces like they, they used to be like a, a I'll talk about Birmingham gaming spaces now, but in the basement of one of the games, uh, the game stores there, they had just couches set up where you could go and theoretically play like Mario Kart and good mm. stuff like that. But no one ever actually does that. There's this sort of social barrier between actually sitting down next to a total stranger unless you're going there with friends. And in which case, yeah. is that just a British thing or, or do you I think it's a generalized? I, 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 it must be a British thing because, you know, Lancaster is a huge in Korea, for example. So it's just a different cultural understanding of what that is. Mm. Um, but also just going there with your mates and sitting down to play there. If, if sort of designed to feel like your living room, but it's very public. <laughs> there are people shopping around you and that, that mm. clash of things just doesn't work at all. Mm. Uh, and I'd be even more suspicious in VR 
if I couldn't see what was going on around me. <laughs> yeah. And I was in a, a building full of strangers <laughs> sleeping and wanking all around me. Yeah. I, it, it just sounds like a nightmare, doesn't it, really? I think you get your own room, Tom. Yeah, but you know it's happening. <laughs> you know it's happening, that's the draw. Yeah, yes. <laughs> your hotels. Surely that would just be a problem you have with hotels. It, 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 to be honest, <laughs> it is. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's sorted. I mean, I think you're on something, though, because, like, I used to run the gaming basement of my local internet cafe when I was a teenager. It was like my Saturday job. Hmm. And, um, but it, it was popular because it was a place where people who knew each other hung out mm. and it was, you know, people knew people could come in and kind of play counter-strike with people or whatever. And they did, but like, you know, we were across the road from the games workshop and in mm. Salisbury. And every time the games workshop closed up for lunch, all those guys uh, would come over and play Counter-Strike for an hour or something. So it was just mates. It was a place for mates to hang out. It was literally like a, a closed room as well in an internet cafe that would otherwise have just sort of regular non-gaming clientele coming and going. And it was it was more about the community than the services offered. It was a place for people who would be in town anyway to go and play a game. Mm-hmm. And I, like now the premises that have shifted so much where like if kids are playing Fortnite on their phones, do they need somewhere to go? Probably not. Otherwise, a lot of people who are playing games online are doing it at home because they've got computers and mm-hmm. internet connections that are capable of doing it. This wasn't the case in 2002, really, you know? And so, yeah, I think, I think having more spaces where people can go to like do their hobbies together is a good thing. Yeah, that's cool. But it doesn't need to be kind of purpose built like a theme park necessarily. Mm. If, if that theme park is built around experiences that are home entertainment for the vast majority of people, mm. like you don't go to a DVD hotel. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Has anybody ever watched a DVD at a hotel? Cause there's always like one or two there. Like I can't imagine anybody. <laughs> yeah. No, no. Like, I mean, I suppose it gets around the experience of. I don't know, taking your PlayStation on a press trip because you want to play Destiny. I've not done this personally, but I know this is a reliable struggle. Hmm. People who understand what brands of hotel will let you get an HDMI cable into the back of their tellies, that kind of thing. Hmm. Oh, yeah. The Switch is very good for that. Diablo 3, HDMI cable, job done. <laughs> well, that's the thing, right? Like, this is sort of anti-Switch in a way, mm. and I feel like the Switch wins that fight. Yeah, that's true. Mm. Anyway, best of luck to them. And <laughs> yeah. to, to Atari and the producers of... Um, uh, the Teenage, teenage Mutant. Mutant, 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 Mutant. I can't say that. Ninja. Turtles. Thank you. Remake. Thanks. Marsh, would you like to talk about what you've been playing? Oh, God. See, now you're on the spot. I would, yes. Um, uh, I've been playing uh, a game called Creature in the Well, which I saw on Twitter and uh, never heard of before, but apparently came out last year. Mm. Um, and I assume it hasn't done that well because... I mean, not that my knowledge of it is the real dipstick for success, because I'm incredibly ignorant about huge swathes <laughs> of uh, things in general, but also games. Um, but I'm surprised it hasn't had more kind of pickup on, you know, in the media what I read, because mm. it has an incredibly you know, arresting art style. It's got this really striking sort of posterized graphic style. Like, it's, it's the 3D game, but all the kind of textures and everything are of these really striking colors that are rendered in, like, two-tone. Mm. Um, and it, it, it looks really remarkable and unlike n- most other games. So there was a, talking about, tw- you know, pointless Twitter controversies, uh, uh, 
former Valve man Chet Falazek, uh, mm. opined on Twitter, sorry, advisedly the other day about the similarity of these, uh, a number of games that have been released on the same day and they had a particular kind of <laughs> yeah. art style. The thing is, he wasn't totally wrong in his broader point that there are a lot of games that have a similar sort of flat shaded, uh, 3D kind of cutesy style and yeah. they're, they're easy to, to mistake for one another. Um, uh, but obviously that became a terrible, terrible shitstorm from which nobody escaped with their dignity intact. <laughs> yeah, that's, which is principally because they were three games from the same developer, which... Yes. yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, just, yeah. And they were released on the same day because they were just, they were all really small games that this developer had been making for a Patreon that they, um, mm. they released on Steam in a single go. Anyway. That's beside the point. This, uh, you know, this, this gets away from that accusation with aplomb because it is, it is really remarkable and unique and unlike nearly any other indie game, uh, in its visual style. It's also a weird genre. It's a pin brawler. A pin, pin brawler. brawler. A pinball fighting. Yeah. So nice. it's sort of like, um, it is like a hack and slash game, top down sort of game, but in fact, instead of slashing and hacking at, uh, Gribblies, uh, you are hacking and slashing at, uh, energy balls, which you then pelt across, uh, the tiny arena that you're closed in and bounce off breakers and objects. Nice. Um, the context for which is that you are a pinball wizard. Robot. Shit. Engineer. Okay. Pinball wizard. <laughs> <That's right>. uh, <laughs> uh, who has awoken, uh, after some aeons of sleep in the desert, uh, and he struggles back to, uh, this mountain. And the mountain contains a machine which controls the weather. And uh, apparently without this machine being turned on, the world has been consumed by a sandstorm. And so you need to power up the sh- machine by pinballing energy balls around it. Uh, it's various different components and, you know, powering up individual rooms every time, mm. you know, so basically your score is equal to energy and then you spend your energy to get through doors, which then lead you to the next part of the arena. Uh, and you power up more things and so on and so forth. And there's... um but it's quite interesting because you're not, you know, as with most pinball games, you're not just like a bat, uh, which is in a fixed location. You mm. are a moving person who can move in, you know, all the directions what you can move in on a 2D plane. And, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, and you can, you have 360 degree aim and all these other things that you'd associate with like brawlers. <laughs> so it is quite an interesting mix. And the, uh, and for the first, like, um, 40% of the game, I would say, quite accurately, because this is the, the, the measure that it gives you of how much I've played. It is, uh, a really kind of, not, not trivial, but, um, gentle kind of challenge. It's quite therapeutic. You, you can, if, if you fuck up, you just spend more time pelting balls around until you get the, the score that you need to progress, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but there is, there's obviously finesse to it. Um, but at 40% completion, it becomes really fucking hard. <laughs> at least for me. And I found that it's flipped from being sort of... Flipped? Pinball <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, good. Um, <laughs> it flipped from being, uh, you know, a fair that I could reasonably plow through with, uh, you know, some mm. humiliation, um, to being something that I, I cannot really progress with now, I don't think. Mm. Um, and it's quite, I mean, it's, I mean it, it doesn't really do that many more things on top of the base game, but there's just, there's more, like, there's things that you need to avoid, uh, that are coming to you that do damage to you. And obviously if you die, then you get set back. Mm. Um, and there's more requirements for precision aim. Um, so there'll be tiny apertures you need to get your energy balls through. 
And um, there's timing challenges. So there's often a time limit on where sort of like a, one of these paddles that you want to hit pops up and it'll have a time limit on it before it drops down again. You'll need to get that one and then that'll open another one and that'll have a timer on it. And then if you get out of sequence, then you have to start again. Um, and uh, I'm not very good at that, it turns out. Um, but, you know, fucking boohoo. I'm an old, weak man. Uh, <laughs> I don't deserve to be able to play games anymore. That's fine. I don't blame the game for its difficulty. Um, and I'm sure younger people with, you know, you know, more agile fingers will, will, uh, will be fine with it. But it did give me an opportunity to kind of scrutinize the, uh, the control schemes for these games and see where their weaknesses were or where mm. I was expressing my weaknesses within their control schemes. Um, cause you can play on mouse and keyboard. Um, and it's, uh, in that case, it's WASD to move um mm. and uh then you um then you click with your left mouse button to sort of charge up uh you swish your sword around and you suck in all the balls you suck them right in and then with the right mouse button you give them a hearty smack and then they're sent flying so but while you can't aim at any point unless you're doing your charging up sucking in the balls thing and this is a sort of weird uh dichotomy that when you actually fire balls you don't necessarily <laughs> yes i know i know sorry I know, I, i'm saying the word balls I, that just it passed over my face like a sh- little shadow and I, <laughs> I knew i wanted to be better than that and i knew i wasn't anyway we've all got to live in this world indeed so you can't actually see where your balls are going when you um when you send them flying mm. um yeah that's normal that's normal um which is which is fine, but actually that mode has a, uh, a you can aim pretty precisely because you've got mouse control. You can mm. just put the mouse cursor where you want the balls to go, and um, you can see them. <laughs> Sorry. Stop it! Stop staring at me directly in the eyes when you say this. <laughs> um, but it has other problems. So WASD isn't very articulate for the kind of movements that you need to be making continuously to dodge around things, mm-hmm. and uh, there's a dash move which you need to be basically hammering continuously. Um, which is on shift and you can't really hammer buttons with your little finger very easily. Mm. So, I mean, it's none of these things are like game breaking, like, Oh, this is fucking control suck. But like they don't, there's always a, there's a kind of obviously intentional friction in them. And it's weird that the each control scheme has so like a different failing. Mm. So if you move to the game pad, that, uh, is, is very good for like maneuverability dashes on a, and you have full, you know, full analog control of where you move with the left analog stick. But then aiming is really hard because weirdly they decided not to make it a twin stick game. So hmm. you then press X, I think to do your charge up attack. And then you aim with the same analog stick that you were previously using to move and you hmm. can't move while you do it. So this means that. If you, for example, this has a bunch of problems, but if you, if you fire then, um, and you haven't let go of the analog stick, you start moving in the direction you're aiming. And that's not often what you want to be doing because where you want to move and where you want to fire are very rarely the same thing. And so you need to constantly kind of make sure that you're, you're kind of like moving your finger off the analog stick, which means that you really only have flick aim control and the, and the kind of time windows that the game later imposes on you in which you need to aim and the precision with which you need to do so kind of outstrip what the 360 analog stick can do uh, at least or what i can do with it which isn't like I, I don't know i mean games use it as a as a, obviously games use it as a, a radial selection dial mm. a lot but they tend to a pause the action while you're doing that 
and they tend to understand that you need to pretty much extend to the, your your uh, your finger to the rim of the of of that movement range in order to get mm. accurate mm. Uh, compass point movement on it. Because, I mean, maybe other people's hands are different. Uh, bigger hands might have different experiences of this, but you know, my unsurprisingly, my thumb hinges further down than where the analog stick is. So there's an unnatural bias towards lateral movement with that analog stick, right? Which means that you're not that kind of precise in in doing things that are in the arc above that, moving upwards and slightly left. And it's really mm. hard to do that with a single flick to get something really accurate. Um, so it's, it's, I don't know why all of this would be solved though if they went with twin stick. So they right. must intentionally not want you to do that. Obviously, they want you to pause while you're aiming and thus be vulnerable to projectiles, I guess. But I still feel like there must have been a better system where they, they could have done that, which would allow mm. you to have analog aim on a on a different stick from the other even one like a sort of time slowdown when you're aiming is it would be a thing a feel thing right yeah it's a weird choice but it, like i say, it's, it's really weird that both control schemes have flaws but they're the opposite flaws <laughs> from each other <laughs> so i don't know quite know uh, and i i've looked at the um the control schemes and obviously you can remap like the the keyboard but you can't you, i couldn't there's no way to remap uh aiming onto a different analog stick right unfortunately but it's an interesting, it's a really interesting blend. Uh, it's not a game kind of combination I've, uh, I've thought of before. And, and perhaps mm. <laughs> there's a reason for, <laughs> for its lack of uh, uptake so far. I don't know. It's, it's, it's quite a pleasant experience and it looks beautiful and it, there's a, a sort of charming, uh, vibe to it. There's, there's a, a, a small little village right outside the, the mountain. Um, and there's, uh, a giant crocodile in there. And other strange creatures that talk to you, and that's quite nice. And the creature, sorry, there is a creature in the mountain, I should say, or in the the well. In right, I was going to ask where the name came from. Well, there's a well outside, but the creature is really predominantly in the mountain. But he can pop outside the well. So okay. uh, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but this is just a, a some kind of mischievous mountain sprite that's preventing you from putting the machine back together, basically. Uh, and threatens you throughout. And then there's occasional boss battles with it, uh, which, uh, also express through the medium of pinball. Um, yeah. Excellent. Did you ever play Sonic's pinball? No, I didn't. I played that a lot when I was a kid. That's the only other kind of application of pinball to a adventure scenario I can think of. But that is a traditional pinball game to mm. the extent, apart from the fact that your ball is Sonic and that he feels pain. <laughs> <laughs> it has, it's a surprisingly grim game. It has a much darker kind of aesthetic than almost any other Sonic game that I really? remember. Yeah. Like, you know, it's still Dr. Robotnik and he's filling the world with like a pink goo, I think, but it has a kind of mid nineties sort of, um, grossness to it. Like cartoony, but still faintly Geigerish, if I remember right. Like in its kind of weird, oh, weird. industrial design and kind of like, hmm. I remember. I remember it being like not a scary game, but one where I felt unsettled every time you you miss paddle Sonic and he like drowns. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think there've been a few um, pinball games where you are the ball. Um, mm. I mean, Monkey Ball is basically pinball. Oh yeah, I guess. But it I mean, is. Um, yeah, and I'm sure there are Mario Galaxy levels which are more or less pinball. I think, but yeah, there's not that. I, I don't think there's any way you are a, a, like a, a walking embodied paddle. <laughs> always the pa- always the ball never the paddle that's the <laughs> video games yeah <laughs> yeah anyway that's all i have to say cool. about that uh what have you been playing tom mm, i've played a few things i've been playing dynasty warriors 8 
um, Ooh. game that originally released the PlayStation 3 in 2013, um, which is the very definition of a guilty pleasure in many ways, a deeply stupid game <laughs> where physics is, doesn't exist properly and you're, you, you know, you're a, a warrior from Chinese mythology who goes out with a big spear and juggles 100 men in midair for about 20 <laughs> blows before eventually they their health bars expire. But even then, the juggle doesn't stop because <laughs> the joy of the game is just to keep as many dudes in the air for as long as possible uh, until the, the moment they hit the ground and they, they all die. And you murder about a 1,000 people per battle doing this. And that's uh, it's rare to come across a game that has just like one thing <laughs> that it, it doesn't... It, it's, it, okay, so it's got 175 characters. <laughs> but they all do this one thing <laughs> some of them do it with fans some of them do it with big rings some of them do it with bombs or balls or whatever mm. but they they do the fundamentally that one thing to men <laughs> and they've been doing it over how many successive games now well um nine i think is, is what we're up yeah. to but um in the ninth one they added an open world and everyone absolutely slated it because it didn't do that one thing <laughs> <laughs> that the game is you know designed to to facilitate infinite man juggler the infinite man juggler <laughs> genre uh, and it's just astonishing that just one simple mechanic it, which is very satisfying like it's really fun playing this game of just comboing ridiculous musu attacks together to keep as many guys in the air as you can at one, one time is just it's a very it feels like bowling mm. with dudes uh, and it's, it's about, you know, juggling those skittles until they all fall down and you get a massive score boost. And at the end, it tells you... you, you... Have you ever been bowling? Uh, yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes uh... <laughs> Who is never permitted back. <laughs> Stop juggling. <laughs> combo breaker. Get them from other lanes. That would be kind of a cool Keeping them in the air. <laughs> that would be kind of cool. Um, yeah, so that's been my sort of guilty pleasure. I listened to podcasts and played Dynasty Warriors 8 at the moment. Um the other game I've been playing uh, just today, in fact, which is the game is out today, is Warcraft 3 Reforged. Ooh. Ooh. Reforged is Warcraft 3, but with um, they've sharpened up all the textures and stuff. It's the same game. Apart from that, apparently, it has fewer animations and old uh, cutscenes. And How dare they? I know, yeah. How dare they um, remove those animations? I barely remember. Uh, yeah, so, but, you know, uh, on the internet and on, on the Reddits, uh, people <laughs> have noticed these um, small discrepancies. Uh, I, however, never played Warcraft Really? Oh. Nothing played any of the Warcraft games, which well. supposedly a fan of RTSs is pretty huge gap, gap in my knowledge. Mm. So I was delighted to be able to jump in uh, to a version that runs on modern PCs and mm. looks, looks alright. Um, and it was, it was depressing. <laughs> um, <laughs> wow. Um, but the reason it was depressing isn't because Warcraft 3 is bad. It's quite good. Um, it made me depressed about the entire genre though. The oh. RTS as a, <laughs> as a genre, because I was playing through like Mission Four. Uh, the the factions are really colourful, really nicely realised. Actually, there's loads of voice acting. The story's really simple, but it does way more than most RTS stories mm. tries to do. Um, and then in uh, you get locked up by a load of Murlocs in Mission Four, and you, you stage a jailbreak. We are going between cells, and then you're gradually building up your force and taking over the prison, and then escaping. And I was like, oh, this is pretty much as smart as RTS mission design has been since this game. So I right. thought that stuff had been had been, been done by like Dawn of War 2 and stuff like that, that had taken these small squads and done these kind of baseless 
missions as a kind of novelty. It turns out they were just like, lifting it from Warcraft 3 all along. Mm. And, yep. uh, yep. And then there was playing with, like heroes and it's weird you get flashbacks. I get flashbacks to Dota 2 because a lot of the, uh, the, the commands for setting off spells and stuff for the hero characters are very similar to Dota I mean, the literal characters are where Dota characters come from, right? Yeah. Like, it's, right? it's Warcraft 3 characters that are those characters. Yeah. So, so I'm getting these weird artistic flashbacks as well or flash forwards to mm. Dota 2 and, uh, uh the, the, um, the little kind of, uh, watches you can put down to break, uh, to open up the, um, de- uh, the, the field uh, the fog, fog of war, war. Um, and they look exactly like the the spies in those two like the, yeah. yeah yeah and it's like hmm. it's so weird like having <laughs> it's like you know when you you watch the simpsons and it parodies a film you haven't seen yet and then you eventually watch the famous film and it's like oh i remember this via the simpsons through this lens of <laughs> things that happened far after it they're actually right. derived from it uh, and I, and what, so far warcraft 3 has been that just moment to moment for the whole the whole time um and it just made me realize that the, the genre is so short on ideas and that a lot of the stuff has been done by starcraft and done by warcraft 3 very early on and hasn't really moved much since mm. right well it's sort of two things at once because it's such it was such a dominant game mm. and such a ma- like it was both it was sort of yeah design wise it was seminal in that genre and it sets the stage for so much stuff that I'm interested. That's a really interesting kind of way of experiencing it. Cause mm. like I, I remember it was the game I was most looking forward to when I was a teenager, like I followed it relentlessly. Um, like, you know, I loved it and it was one of my favorite games ever. And, you know, really, really, you know, I was super invested in the story at the time because I was 16 when it came out. So I was the right age for it and things like that. Mm. And then after it, you see its story in everything mm. and you see it's, uh, art and everything right yeah, like right. It, it basically invented the kind of chunky cartoon fantasy thing because mm. it was really i think warcraft 3 when blizzard in from a fantasy sense or from a warcraft sense actually no i'd say this i think generally i think warcraft 3 was the moment blizzard figured out what their art style was because both the original starcraft and the other two warcraft games uh were very indebted to warhammer they just were like they were still like, a little bit gritty around the edges yeah. the concept art was still kind of yeah. got that grimdark kind of thing to it very 90s sort of again that kind of 90s gribble that sort of crept into everything everything was sort of covered in hazard stripes and mm. all the rest of it and warcraft 3 was when they moved ahead and moved on and did something made made a lot more of it their own made the story their own it's where the storyline meaningfully diverges from its warhammer roots and things like that and then it leads to World of Warcraft, which is Warcraft yeah. 3 as an MMO at scale. I mean, it's the same engine, for God's sake. Hmm. Like, um, and then, um, it's, you know, it leads to League of Legends via Dota and, hmm. and other things in terms of that kind of ubiquitous cartoon fantasy art style. Like, it's not just all RTS games. It's Clash of Clans. It's every mobile game with swords in it looks like Warcraft 3. Hmm. Like, it's so absurd its reach that it's like, I kind of, don't blame other games for copying its fundamental mechanics, but it's mm. like, it's a bit like kind of World of Warcraft did the MMO in a way. It's like, was there a version of the RTS that developed based on total annihilation or something where mm. it's just more mech or mech warrior or something like that, where it's sort of like a completely different set of principles? I don't, Maybe I don't not. Know that, that explains the, the lack of innovation within the, the, the single no. player RTSs. I think that may be just to do with that, the, 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 the focus of the industry moved to multiplayer. Mm. And like, if you're going to make an RTS nowadays, it's limited resources to put into it. You're not probably going to spend them on the single player campaign to the same extent that you are yeah. going to be trying to build up whatever infrastructure is required to make it a really successful pro scene multiplayer game. Yeah. Also, it does seem to be really, really hard to make good RTS AI. 
Um, mm, right. To make it actually challenging and not just go for the most, the optimal build and therefore be predictable for it to actually, for an AI to actually, uh, you know, trick you is so, so rare. And very few games, I mean, maybe Gauss of two manages it, but it's, it's so rare. And that's the kind of thing that you, you need misdirection and, and, you know, fakery to actually make mm. a, an RTS opponent feel challenging to defeat. Uh, whereas, you know, all the single player missions in most RTS games you play, you're just plowing through, you know, yeah. uh, opponents that have just been dropped into Zones yeah, like the situation can be challenging, but the AI really is. Yes, yeah. Uh, so, I th- the, yeah, I, I just don't think without that, I'm not sure how a single player RTS could get away from mm. these very plodding missions that just go move you through the map bit by bit until you've cleared it. Did you play, um, Deserts of Karak? Is that what it is? Yes, I've played, uh, yeah, I played a few hours of that and it's really atmospheric and, uh, but I, I, I still haven't encountered any sort of particularly mm. super smart. Uh, right ai or anything in it. No, I, I need to revisit it i didn't uh i i, I dipped into it um but i don't i don't have the rts knowledge that you do but it, I, I felt like um that was doing something very different with the the, the feel of the game than a lot of RT, other rts's have especially since as you say there a lot of them are indebted to the art style and just yeah. general atmosphere of warcraft well on that i think you're right that i think homeworld is one of the exceptions mm. to this rule i think mm. it's one of the reasons it's such a great game it's like yeah. it's one of the rts's that you can point to and say doesn't look or feel like warcraft no it really doesn't um it plays differently like that that's a re- it's a, a gritty difficult rts as well like yeah it's really interesting to play um company of heroes as well obviously mm. war, war games have, are on their own track in a way uh, Good Heroes in particularly, like that, that had its own design philosophy that was just very, very different to other RTSs and Relic have kind of iterated on it, but I don't think they've bettered it since then. Uh, I still think the British versus Axis balance in Skirmish is one, one of the best RTS single player experiences in Good Heroes. Mm. It's one of some of the best battles you can have. Um, World in Conflict, that was another interesting experiment where they went totally race free and it was about having requisition points that you'd spend and mm. you'd have a, um, a finite number of troops, but as they died, you could bring in different types and change the makeup of your force to counter whatever was happening in the battlefield at the time. And that had a good story as well. Hmm. Really spectacular nukes. But apart from, but yeah, Warcraft 3 is still feels ubiquitous because of WoW as well. No? You write about the, the art style. Um, the art style is great because, uh, they've, they've obviously upgraded all the textures and everything, but it's amazing how the heroes pop out from, it's this very brightly colored game, but they still manage to make the heroes that they're just slightly bigger than everyone else. The silhouettes are chunkier uh, and you, you know exactly where they are on the battlefield all the time it's just a really mm. nicely designed visually designed piece mm. piece of uh, art mm. awesome mm. you've been playing chris so i've got two things one is uh well my comfort game has been which is not about juggling men um <laughs> but it is about being decapitated um on demand Oh. by the worst people on the internet. <laughs> um this is Mordhow, which i've returned to i uh, played it a lot last summer last summer it came out and i hadn't touched it for a while um, I was going to play Monster Hunter again. Um, and I was like, it's only been six months since I played Monster Hunter, so I'll jump back in. And then Steam's, like, last played thing said, last played August 2018. Oh, my God. And I realized that that was over 18 months, or coming up on 18 months ago. And uh, the ground opened up beneath me like a chasm, and I couldn't face time anymore. <laughs> like, when I realized that Alien Isolation is almost six years old, that was the other thing that, mm, that got me. What? <laughs> yep. Oh. Uh, yep. Ah, indeed. Ah. Mm. Oh, no. If we were in space, you wouldn't be able to make that noise. <laughs> it's very true. Um, so I went and played Mordhau again instead because it had come on a amount of time I could handle. Um, and so many maps and things, and it seems a little more stable and balance changes and stuff. Otherwise, it hasn't changed loads. It's still very, very popular, which is nice to see. Like, it's definitely retaining its player base mm-hmm. because I don't think there's anything really like it. I mean, obviously, it's like chivalry and other kind of 
sort of grim uh, medieval sort of quasi-realistic kind of sword fighting or weapon fighting combat games. Um, but there's something about it that I continue to find very, very compelling in a, there's, it's a strange game because I, I found myself falling back into the hole where I just requeue for the battle royale mode over and over again. The battle royale mode I really love, and it's probably my favorite battle royale game because it's very small player counts, like 10 people on a smallish map. And you, you're all naked, awful men that all look like Vladimir Putin for some reason. And you, you've got exactly the right emotes. The game has, Ah, there's so much to it. It's why it's so strangely unpleasant, but really compelling. It's grotesque. <laughs> like it really is. So there's really extensive voice emotes. Like there's so many of them and there's loads of ones with different voices and things. And some of them are kind of genuinely funny. And some of them are just like wordless screaming. And some of them are like sort of lightly sort of redditish or even 4chanish kind of medieval interpretations of memes and things which is fucking awful yeah i kind of like it because everything is because you're in, in some way you're um down in the mud like everyone's arms are getting ch- chopped off everyone is screaming and someone will go thou art mad and it's like yeah this is probably like what it was like in a way (laughs) like (laughs) down there in hastings or whatever um (laughs) you know it's like that hastings now (laughs) the um the anyway so there's that side of it and something about this critic grotesquery uh is good in the battle realm mode because you all start basically like naked pretty much and you run and you find boxes of mismatched weapons and sometimes you're going to get something good like a bardiche or some heavy armor or a kite shield often you're going to get a random assortment of shit and you have to try and kill other people with it, which for me should be the heart of RL, but a lot of RL boils down to, as this one ultimately does, you get the right equipment and then you proceed with that. But this is always chaos in a way I really admire. Often uh, you'll die immediately and there's really fuck all you can do about it. But because, you know, most, a lot of weapons have like a secondary mode, i.e. like changing a single-handed weapon to a two-handed weapon or adjusting the grip on a, a pole arm or something like that. Anything that does ha- doesn't have that, you can throw. Um, so this is anything from like short swords to blacksmith's mallets to like, no, to blacksmith hammers to like just woodworking mallets to poo you find to stones or whatever. And so the beginning of the game is often, and throwing stuff is like a huge risk because you can grab it or like it can miss and be grabbed by the other person. And it's this mad scramble to just murder someone with the tools available that I always find very funny and strangely compelling. You can now jump kick. Um, and the counter to a kick is another kick. So two men trying to jump kick each other to death is also very, very funny for some mm. reason. Um, and you get in these kind of like jewels of wits where you and another person are like committed to jump kicking at each other and it, it works until one of you doesn't jump kick or, and then what happens? And, and it's just very stupid. Uh, I killed a person who they charged at me and, uh, I threw a short sword at them and it hit them. <laughs> And then I chased them with a big paddle. <laughs> no, I was the paddle. <laughs> um, and they ran and jumped and climbed onto the edge of a, a lumber mill. And I kicked them into the big blade and they died. And it was the best thing. There was another great one. I charged at a man who was standing on a wooden bridge. And I was basically completely naked. And he threw a short spear at me. And it got stuck in my torso. But it didn't kill me. But it was sufficiently close to my cursor that I could pick it up from myself. <laughs> so I pulled it out and threw it directly into his head. And he died, and that felt fucking amazing as well. Well, so you, sometimes you just get chased by someone with a bardiche, and there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> uh, occasionally, you miss like a lot of the combat 
because the other side of it is you can get dueling servers where there's lots of finesse to the combat and lots of depth to it. And you can spend ages on there. I went to a good dueling server. I was getting my ass kicked, but there's this, there's always someone who runs around, and doesn't obey the honor system of bowing and nodding before you duel someone, all the rest of it. Mm. And this, uh, server had mods on it who had, had modded the, uh, as in moderators, but who had modded the game to give themselves like Glock 19s. <laughs> and every now and then someone would like run in and start interrupting someone else's duel, like throwing a smoke bomb down. And you'd just see this guy in full, like sort of Knight Templar armor, pull out a Glock and shoot him <laughs> in the back of the head. <laughs> oh, it's such a cursed thing. It's so good. Mm. And so weird. Like the, the big sort of battlefield style capture point mode is like a total shit show the entire time, as far as I can tell, but kind of interesting. Melee games are interesting. Mm. Lines of battle forming, not around where the cover is, but where the kind of, threat range of weapons are and people kind of almost like a rugby scrum or something is kind of genuinely interesting mm-hmm. there's clearly loads to it but i find myself just playing the battle royale mode on loop and playing until i get like a good start like you get a good couple of kills or or something happens or you kick someone down the stairs or you know i don't know you get a horse early and you don't have anything else so you're just running away on a horse and then someone cuts the legs off your horse and you roll around on the ground and then they behead you with a badish like that's what it is um, but it's not very nutritious in- <laughs> in- inhaled in that way. It's the opposite of the man juggling experience, I think, <laughs> really? in a way. Well, because you're not getting this kind of big power fantasy of like, you know, mm. cashing a big combo. It's a lot of like, just desperate murder in the bushes. Oh, it sounds fun. <laughs> it sounds good. It's good. People should play Mordhau. I like it. Um, but the other game, the new game that I've been playing today, and I think you've played a bit of it as well, Tom. Oh, yes. Um, uh, which came out, which I was looking forward to for a long time, is Warhammer Underworlds Online. Um, which came out yesterday in early access and it is very early access. Um, so this is a direct digital adaptation of a sort of standalone, uh, Warhammer Age of Sigmar boxed game that came out a couple of years ago now, uh, called, well, everyone knew it was Shadespire at the time because that was the name of the first set, but the game is actually called Underworlds. So Shadespire subsequently became Nightfall and then subsequently become Beastgrave. Um, um, which are its various kind of core sets, but this is Underworlds adapted for kind of digital play and it's super early. Um, but, uh, as a top level of what the game is, it's a hex based competitive sort of tactics game where you take a war band of fighters from a particular faction and, and that roster is always fixed. A faction is always the same number of characters and they can, uh, various rules, but you have a limited number of activations. So you're going to take 12 turns in the course of a game. And these are used to activate a character to move, charge, which is a move and an attack, attack, go on guard, these kinds of tactics things. But you also build, uh, and on a basic level, you get points by killing opponents. And then the other side to it is you build two decks, um, or maybe even three decks, depending on how you think about it. A deck of objectives, which are conditions that if you meet them, you get additional points. Uh, ploys, which are essentially like magic or card game style uh, effects that you can play, like shunting a character around, adding bonus dice, that kind of thing, because it's a dice game as well in combat. Um, and upgrades, which are permanent upgrades to characters that you can um, spend your the score you accumulate, which is also your victory condition, on upgrading your characters with. And, I mean, if you're interested in the basic mechanics, Tom, you and I did a hour-long podcast about Shades by when it came out, which is still, like, I think, a fairly expense, like, extensive kind of assessment of what the game is at its core. And it's been very popular for a while now. Um, because I think its core value is that it's not just a hex-based strategy game, nor is it just a kind of dice-rolling war game, nor is it a card game. It's all three of them, and somehow they all work together and talk to each other. 
um, do you agree, Tom? Like the, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's what's so unusual about it. The fact that it uh, has many sort of different degrees of randomization that mm. uh, should seem chaotic and out of control, but somehow it's just the right the, hit, just the secret source for. Sometimes you can't guarantee everything that you want to happen is going to happen, but there's enough uh, control over circumstance to make it very tactical and interesting. Yeah, and so, and there are sort of mechanics that are are cool, like character uh, warbands. Characters can inspire, which means in the card, in the tabletop game, their card flips over and they have better stats and maybe new abilities on the other side. Um, but the conditions in which a character inspires are different character to character and warband to warband. So like, um, normally it's warband wide. So hmm. this warband inspires, um, individual characters when they take, inspire when they take damage or they inspire when they successfully roll a defense against an attack or they inspire when they do damage. And these things sort of affect the kind of, um, scenarios you want to set up and so on. And this is basically, Under Alls Online is basically a direct digital adap- adaptation of this um, that is kind of nicely produced, looks nice, the UI mm-hmm. is nice, that sort of, um, it's nice in a way because it, it gets, there are quite a lot of phases in the game and it gets all of them right for you. That's true. <laughs> like it prompts you for the right things at the right time. It is limited in that it has currently got four warbands from the first set of warbands. Apart from the Reavers, for some reason. Yeah, they skipped one, which yeah, is really interesting. One. And that's interesting to think why. Maybe they just fell out of the metal or something. I don't think it's that. Mm. So this is um, my first complaint, but it is super early access. Yeah. Is that, so the four warbands are uh, Steel Hearts Champions, who are the kind of starter, they were the starter, really the starter warband in the original set. They're still good, but it's three chunky warriors, basically. Hmm. Um, and to this, they, and the, and then in the original core set, these were alongside Garrick's Reavers, who played completely differently. Far more five characters rather than three. Really, really vulnerable with a really weird inspire condition where they inspire when five people are dead, but it's any five. So you can lose half your own people and then they all inspire. Like it's, oh, it's really? kind of, yeah, all these kind of weird mechanics and things. They're not in it yet. Instead, there's another faction, another uh, group from the same faction which is Magor's Fiends, which is three chunky melee boys and a dog. Um, the other, t- the other one they've got is, um, uh, uh, Iron Skull, uh, Gerzag's, what are they called? The Iron Jaws. Uh, yeah, the Iron Skull's boys or something. Like Gerzag boy, I don't know. I, don't, I can't remember. Gerzag's lads or whatever they're called. Four chunky Four lads. orcs. Four chunky orcs, where the twist is one of them's gr- probably the best fighter in the game. The other three are shit. <laughs> That's pretty bad. The, they're basically four chunky people. Yes. And this is a, this is a, um, to stress in a game, in, in a tabletop game, and it has loads of warbands. This is a warband type. Hmm. It's not the rule. And there are three of them. And it's, you know, mm. three of the archetypal representations of one type of warband, really. Yeah. And, that, I mean, war, Underworld players will disagree with me on the nuance there, but if fundamentally, in terms of how they play, particularly when you're new, they're very similar. And then the Sepulchral Guard, who are completely different and one of the weirdest warbands in the game still. And so there are seven skeletons um, with a central, a single skeleton, the Warden, that can bring the others back to life, which is a mechanic that doesn't exist anywhere else. Um, you know, there's a complicated thing where you have 12 activations in the entire game, four per round. You play three rounds and you can only activate one character in a round. Mm. So having seven characters is really strategically careful, like difficult. You, you have characters you may never even use, hmm. but their positioning matters for all sorts of reasons. And so, um, it's very, very sort of strange mix of things in that regard. The other issue with it is it's very bare bones at the moment in terms of like, there's no like play against a friend button. It's either quick you know ranked play non-ranked play um play against a bot hmm. or a tutorial and uh how much did you play did you play the tutorial tom because i'm interested you made of it 
Uh, I did play this tutorial, and it's kind of... It needs to explain what objectives are and why they're important. There's lots yeah. of kind of concepts that it needs to deliver that it doesn't quite get through. I think it's interesting because it's it's not a complicated game when you understand no, it, it's but not. it's got quite a lot to take on. And I think it was... I was sort of... At first, I was like, it's good there's a tutorial here, but as someone who's played a bunch of the uh, tabletop game, is it such a tremendous advantage hmm. at first in simply understanding what's going on because it's, it's good at like telling you what you need to do now. Like, are you going to play a card? Or are you going to pass? Or are you going to not play a card? Or, you know what I mean? So, it, it, you know, there's no, you can't do what can happen in the tabletop game where you miss your window because right. you weren't prompted. You will always get your prompt, but it doesn't do a lot to explain what 90, where 90% of those prompts are coming from or why they're important or why picking a board or, or rotating a board might happen. Yeah. And all of these things. Whereas if you play a tabletop game, all of that stuff is completely second nature to you and you're kind of rolling and it's actually really slick and kind of nice to be able to just play in a lunch break or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, I don't know how they broach the kind of challenge of teaching that nuance to people. I feel like you're going to need some steam guides really soon that explain like, when do you mulligan your hand? Cause like yeah. I've played, like I've won all my ranked games so far and some of them have been good and sort of challenging games. Some of them have been stomps and part of it is like, Oh, I'm, I tweaked my deck for one thing and got rid of some stuff I know is not very good and mm. put in some stuff I know is good. And also like, there's just so much the experience of a couple of years of playing this game clearly impact pays off. And I'm not saying that you could get a new player up to like, you know, years of experience equivalent straight away, but it feels like there are whole phases of the game where like, I feel like I'm setting up a play that is like really, really obvious based on simply how timing works. Yeah. Like I gave them the first activation of the turn so that I could get the last one because I know that I can probably do some trickery to kind of get some objectives on my last turn, Mm. which is like fundamental game stuff. But actually, no, it's not even that. It's like, if I have the last activation of the turn, I'm in a hugely advantageous position and they've taken the first turn, which you probably shouldn't do Mm. unless you're going to get something out of it. So there's all this stuff that like when passing is important or when giving the initiative over is important is stuff that they just don't teach. Yeah. There's a lot of, a lot of it's matchup dependent as well. Yeah. Depending on what certain warbands can do. So Sepulchral Guard, if they're an objective capture Sepulchral Guard with loads of bodies and they've got cards that let them move multiple bodies, um, you need to know that they can do that. It's almost a possibility space for each warband. But obviously like, just listing all of that stuff would kind of ruin the game a bit. Like you need to discover it and sort of come, ac- come up against those tricks. Yeah. But I think that the, it's fine for tutorials to teach concepts and not, be like specifically like, oh, the sepulchral guard can do this. Uh, if you build them mm. in this way, you don't have to say that, but you can say like, in this circumstance, it's a good idea to pass because, uh, it just show you an example of like why you might do that. Yeah. Uh, and also like when building, you know, objectives are so important. Getting rid of objectives that you're just not going to be able to score is really important. Knowing that there are certain types of objective where if you score it, you immediately draw another one is really important. And there's all those little details you just need to know to actually yeah. be really good at the game. It feels like it just needs more, like the tutorial as it is feels like a bit, a bit of a rush. Yeah. And it feels like a bit like the, the experience of sitting down to play a board game with someone who knows it really well and basically just wants to smash you. <laughs> so they say like, if I roll this, it means this. And if you roll that, it means that. And if this happens, it means that, but don't worry about that. Anyway, let's play. Yeah. It's kind of the vibe yeah, at the yeah, moment. Yeah. Whereas I feel like it needs almost like a short single player campaign or something where it increasingly right. gives you more control mm. and then deck building and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And that m- might be in the pipe. It is like, so yeah. it's, it's, it feels super early. Like a load of sound effects aren't in and stuff. So it's, it's, it feels Yeah, sometimes it didn't even load for me. Like the first time <laughs> it loaded, it only played the sound of rolling dice and nothing else. Right. Um, but the other kind of question I have is, is what the model is actually going to be. Mm. Because so they, um, the card selection, I don't know if it's, it feels a little arbitrary. I don't know if it's the content. So the way the, the board game works or the tabletop game works is the core sets have a certain number of warbands and cards 
and then individual warband packs have the models and cards for those warbands because some cards are warband specific and usually you have a big um little stack of generic cards as well that anyone can use and so you know if you want everything you have to buy every warband that's kind of the the business side of it it's not expensive by magic terms because it's a a closed set basically Mm. Uh, there's no random element which is important but like in this, it, it, it seems to me like you get all the cards from the original core set, apart from the Reavers ones, because they're not in the game. Yeah. Plus, I think the contents of those expansions for the ones they have included as they were. Mm. But it's a weird set. And if they expand it and it eventually just has all of the cards from the tabletop game in it, I think that's a good system. Mm. Because that would be great, because it would just be a way of playing sort of optimal underworlds yeah. against other people. And I think that would be a, a fine place for it to reach for even if some of the warbands are expansion or dlc or something but it feels like it's such a strange proposition given that we were talking earlier about what the lifespan of a kind of online competitive game is i'd be really fascinated to see how this one does Mm. because i think i love this game and i'm very happy to have a way to play it quickly at my desk that that is amazing yeah it's genuinely amazing and if it expanded to include all of the stuff the game now has because beast grave has moved things on a pretty long way Mm. um then it would be amazing and they'd play it all the time. Um, and I'd happily pay more money for that, you know, for that experience. Um, if it's reliant on getting new people in, I don't think it's doing anywhere near enough yet, mm. um, to teach people why this game is good. I'd kind of like anyone who I would recommend Underworlds to anyone who likes turn-based strategy games. Yeah. But I would kind of recommend like having someone teach you the tabletop game, then go play the digital version because yeah, I don't right. think it really explains why it's good. Yeah, as, it's interesting to think about the new Magic game. And one of the reasons why the new Magic yeah. game is really good because it, it does have all those extensive single-player, slowly unlocking cards mm. and slowly unlocking uh, decks with dual colours in and s- revealing that as a concept. Oh, you can just mix disciplines and, and they can complement each other in interesting ways. Uh, unlocking those concepts for you and Underworlds, in, it's in a very early state, but I, I completely agree it needs to demonstrate its, show its chops in a way. Um, and also, like... Is might suffer a little bit from there being so many Warhammer games. Mm. It's not necessarily clear that it's like a this is the nature of Sigmar. It's a brand new thing. It's yeah. something that that, that Games Workshop haven't really done very much before. And it's, it, for me, it's their best competitive game. And so uh, it feels Underworld, like yeah, definitely. the, the, the closest close that they've got to the Warhammer chess, basically, which is a mm. tactical and interesting card game as well. Um, uh, whereas I get much more narrative pleasure out of their war games. Uh, and it's, there's nothing about the game that necessarily shouts that to people. Like this is a serious seriously good competitive tactical game there's nothing about almost the presentation or the way it's kind of sold or that really mm. kind of makes makes it makes that pitch to people who don't necessarily know what it is yeah and i think i'll be interested to see you made it because obviously we have been sort of enjoying age of sigmar as a miniature thing for a very long time now one thing that's notable about this is the first time that license has been used in a pc game yeah like there's been a few uh, mobile games but not nothing major um, but Age of Sigmar is a, the new Warhammer Fantasy Battle hasn't been a PC game. And therefore, this is the first time I've seen half of these characters animated. Yeah, right. And some of that's cool. Some of it's super rough at the moment. Yeah. Like, there's a... When you attack somebody, you roll sort of attack dice and defense dice. And the dice are quite nicely animated, actually. They feel really <laughs> yeah. chunky and impactful when they roll certain results and things. Um, but... Um, and they obviously have done bespoke animations for hitting, missing, being blocked, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but like, t- but the the one thing they've missed is... Like someone gets hit and then they both sort of go back to their idle poses and then some health is removed and it feels like getting hit should have some impact and yeah. things like that. Yeah. Um, the best animation in it is, uh, have you, have you ever knocked back, uh, M- M- Magor's dog? 
<laughs> very know. good. So you can, after you do damage, or if a, if an attack is either perfectly blocked or it does damage, the attacker has the option to push someone back a hex. It's one of the core rules of the game. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is dumb in this game currently because everyone does the... Have you ever seen, like, in any action game where someone is stuck in their falling animation and yes. they're sort of hovering above the ground but, like, waving their arms around? <laughs> yes. They do that and they slide back a hex. Pretty sl- slapstick stuff, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Except Riptooth, the flesh hound of corn, who does a slow backflip while, <laughs> like, hovering backwards. And, like, in, like, it's so strange. Like, you get, like, you force <laughs> Riptooth back and he just sort of, like, it is, it's in that sort of cursed Thomas the Tank Engine kind of meme <laughs> space. Right. Just sort of, like, I think it's supposed to be like a backwards, you know, like, like the sort of wounded dog leap back and roll kind yeah, of thing, I know, I know but it's mean. far too slow and he hovers and like floats <laughs> back a hex. It's very strange. That's really odd. That's really odd. <laughs> I'm excited to see what they do with it though. Like, I yeah. think it's a good start. I'd love to see those animations cleaned up though, for sure. For sure. It feels like there's a lot of opportunity for like, you know, lightning hammer strikes to feel like that rather yeah, than crushing, like, rather than yeah, like waving and bumping. Yeah. But yeah, um, I'd be fascinated to see what people made of it who had no experience with the tabletop game, but I don't know how many people in that position will play it. Yeah, we'd like to see it polished up and then maybe some free weekends and inviting some sort of community tactical card game players in to, yeah. to test it out. I think it also, they should add the Skaven. Like, yeah, there's so much weird stuff in that game that they should add, like, yeah. Yeah. Ghosts, Skaven. What's the good stuff? Weird things. One big troll. It's <laughs> good. Shall we do some questions from questions? Well, Marsh, I believe you owe the people a question. I do. Last week, uh, Alex and I insufficiently answered a good question. Uh, and so I said that we would hold it back and uh, put it to greater minds, such as those that are before me today. Uh, so if you recall from last week, Marius wrote, uh, Dear Crucifix and Cenotaph, playing through Spanish Inquisition Simulator Blasphemous led me to Google Blasphemous Patch Notes. What changes would be in the forbidden heretical patch notes for your favourite games? Cheers, Marius. I just leaned slightly to the right and the entire left half of my body has died. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Marvellous. Okay, just, ow, wow. Mm. Hmm, incredible pain. Let's continue. <laughs> don't know what's going on there. It's kind all good. of thematically apt yeah. for, uh, Ooh, for blasphemous. But, yeah, don't know why that's happened, but hmm, bones are just... You've sinned. Yeah, exactly. So, so. The bones have just decided to not. Um, blasphemous patch notes. There's two ways of interpreting this. There are things that are secretly good and things that are, you know, but sort of forbidden fruit sort of type things mm-hmm. and things that are just yeah. forbidden for sort of reasons of kind of supreme diktat or creed. And I think I've got examples of both. The forbidden Dota 2 patch note <laughs> yeah. is added surrender option. That is the, that is the sort of fundamental philosophical kind of statement I think that the game is built on, which is you're here for 40 minutes. It's going to be horrible. <laughs> Stick it out. This is a redemptive process for which there is no easy exit, only, only perseverance. To add a surrender option would be to give in to the notion that not having fun is bad. Um, and that is antithetical, literally <laughs> antithetical to what the, to the, what that game is built on. Uh, the other example that sprang to mind would be a feature in Destiny, uh, or Destiny 2 that allowed you to build crucible loadouts, i.e. PvP loadouts out of any combination of weapons and armor in the game, a la any other, uh, you know, kind of competitive shooter. Um, 
So everyone competed on a completely even playing field with access to all of the right mods and weapons and armor. And it was purely skill based. Um, with, I guess, loadout selection being somewhat of an option, but with no limitation or time requirement to get there. Mm, that would be theoretical to the business, <laughs> to the business uh, model and the retention of that game. But Tom it, actually seems offended. <laughs> it's just it's a world just, I can't even fully envision <laughs> in Destiny. Exactly, right? It just wouldn't work. Destiny without progression in its competitive element. Right. Where the only progression is your own ability. Imagine it, Tom. Oh, it's, I mean, I, I can. I play most games work like that. But <laughs> yeah. Destiny, no. Scandalized. Scandalized, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, and the final one I was going to suggest would be a... Uh, Prince of Persia style or even Life is Strange style rewind function in all Bioware games. Oh, yeah. So you don't like what just happened? Just fucking... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Our friend Richard McCormick would love that because yeah. he replayed the entire game to undo a <laughs> decision. To be fair, he had to go back yeah. so fast to undo that decision, he would be holding the rewind button for <laughs> yeah. the entire yeah. first half of Mass Effect 3 and half of Mass Effect 2. <laughs> I don't think that would stop him. <laughs> would I suppose the really heretical change would be to incorporate a save editor or a trainer as part of the game. So go back to the main menu. So like, you know, like in the later games where you can tweak the exact parts of your save that were imported right. to confirm, to quote unquote confirm their right, i.e. undo that thing you did where you didn't do this quest and you didn't, you know, whatever. Um, and the really theoretical thing would be just to make that set of many main menu options. Like this person horny for you. He was set to Y. You know what I mean? Like mm. to, to sort of enable the content drill where people can just mine out yeah. all of it without having to actually invest. Or even just simply showing you the number, the numbers behind yeah. their affection and saying, Oh, you've, you're nine out of 20 with Ashley. If you get to 15, you'll go up and Yeah. And there are this many yeah. conversations remaining. Yes, like, yeah. yeah right. all, like laying that bear would be horrible. All of these kind of acts of blasphemy are functionally <laughs> taking away things that make games. They're dev tools. Yeah, they're dev <laughs> yeah. yeah, they are. They're dev yeah, tools. Yeah. Um, but, like, I suppose I'm trying to, like, match how people actually play games. Like, people kind of want the dev tools half the time, hmm. but you have to tell them that the art of game design is convincing someone that they don't actually want the dev tools. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're still happy to not have them, yeah. then you've done a good game. <laughs> they, have a, they have a patch gravity into Dynasty Warriors 8. That's the end, <laughs> the end of the genre. It's <laughs> the end of the entire series. <laughs> Just an oversight for the last nine games. Yeah. Oh, all... we forgot to turn it to this zero Actually, to one. Maybe that's why nine was unsuccessful, because yeah. they finally oh, patched it in. Realistic physics. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, oh, any, uh, any patch that um, stops bunny hopping or any of the speedrunner techniques in Source Engine games. Mm. So that would ruin an entire community, a really fun <laughs> community to patch that stuff out, mm. even though they probably could. Yeah. Um. Adding visible expressions of pain to Pokemon. <laughs> Pretty good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Marsh, are you capable of understanding blasphemy? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what does that question even mean? I don't know. No. I don't know. Anyway, thank you for answering that question. That's you'll, right. You'll know. Oh, of course you answered this last week. I forgot. You'll now both be stoned. So, uh, Great. congratulations. Excellent. Uh, oh, I had the questions in my pocket. <laughs> and we were answering yeah, that yeah. one. I put them back. I'm just going to keep talking. Sorry, I, I questioned your abilities and perceived blasphemy. I think sometimes I get too invested in the idea of you as a sort of sordid goblin. <laughs> um, but that's not who you are. And it's a, uh, you know, diminishing returns. The, uh, the next question comes from, uh, Bruce who writes, 
Dear Corpse and Interact button. Uh, <laughs> having recently been forced to make the jump to Windows 10 on my triggers broom of a gaming PC, I went and got myself an Xbox controller since I've heard from people such as the Great and Crowbar that it makes many a game do better good. <laughs> I was being gestated when the original Star Wars was first released and have been exclusively on mouse and keyboard since our family purchased an Amiga in 90 or maybe 91. My first foray into the use of a controller was a game at which I was already very much not good, that being Dark Souls 3. I was aware I was probably making a mistake, but it wasn't until a good 17 or 23 seconds into my first go that I realized I was, in fact, being a colossal moron. What games would you recommend to teach this old mouse and keyboard dog some new controller tricks? Woof, I'm a good boy. Ouch, my knees, Bruce. (laughs) (laughs) If you want to start slow and learn some twin stick dexterity, something like The Witness would be good. Um, mm, yeah, it's got the um, gradual moving and looking around, but also the actual manipulation of the puzzles is, is well suited to analog controls as well. That's a good point. Yeah, like mm. a first-person puzzler where there's no time pressure, really. Yeah, uh, would be a good way to acclimatize. Well, we have the guy's portal as a yeah. way of teaching people to play games as well. Would you? I mean, that does require some some um, skill. I mean, you, I suppose it gets you there. Right? Yeah, like yeah. it start. It doesn't need that at first. Like I think yeah. I think portal's really good for teaching people either WASD, which is a weird com- uh, concept. Or controllers, like, cause it's just, it, it's a game about l- looking and accurately clicking on things in a 3D environment, which is 90% of controlling a video game. Yeah. Yeah. What were the games that you learned to use a controller on if you did? I don't know which direction did you come from? Did you come from PCs to controllers? My or? family had a, like a, like a 486 and then an Amiga when I was a kid. Um, cause my, my dad did computer stuff for BT for a while. Um, so we had them in the house and then, when I was eight or nine, I think I got a Mega Drive for my birthday or Christmas or something, and that was the first console I ever. Owned. But I didn't have it like an analog stick. No, uh, the first mm-hmm. analog stick I would have used would have been the Dreamcast. Because mm. I'm a big old hipster teen, <laughs> and I would have learned to use it in order to play Sonic Adventure, mm. maybe a bit of Choo Choo Rocket. How about you? Halo, I think actually. Mm. Yeah, I didn't. Um... I didn't dally with consoles for a long time. Um, I had a NES and then, uh, but the first analog stick I think I properly fiddled around with was, um, the, um, Xbox, original mm. Xbox. That was a big pad. It was huge. Yeah. It was really big. Big as my lap. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a small man, but it was, it was a big controller. Tom? Um, started out again with like Amigas and stuff. So actually this combination of mouse, keyboard and joysticks actually. Mm. And quite a few joystick games. And then it would be the N64 controller mm. with its one giant prong. Okay. Yeah. Actually, no, no, it I did, been, I did, actually, it would have been yeah. N64 controller. Yeah. Well, actually, that, that was I did, I did use that, but I never learned on it. I was like, yeah. this fucking sucks. Yeah, <laughs> right. um, so GoldenEye, I suppose. And then a Twin Stick would be eventually probably the PS2. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I, I found Twin Stick control. I remember it being a challenge to learn, actually. And I've never enjoyed shooters until Destiny uh, with Twin Stick shooting. Um, so... It's still a thing that I struggle with in first person, though I'm very, very used to playing um, like third person action games, like your Devil May Cry, that kind of thing with a controller. Yeah, I think relatively slow paced third person games are good for this, like mm. Dark Side stuff, maybe, which yeah. like anything, because like, I, like I would recommend Dark Souls if Dark Souls wasn't nails hard. Yeah, like you know what I mean, like something like yeah. Dark Siders or, or even like, uh, I mean, Fa- no one's really playing Fable anymore, but like, um, yeah. I mean, Gears of War is not a bad shot for this, actually. Mm, like, uh, that is a very accessible controller-based shooter, I yeah. think, yeah. Um, in its fundamental mechanics. 
Um, and like, if you're into them, like, uh, the Dragon Age games or Dragon Age Inquisition specifically is good with a controller, I oh, think. Because nice. yep. it's third person, you're going to be looking and running around things, but it's not going to, yeah. like, challenge Thanks you to, you. to aim quickly or something like that. I mean, there is a good reason for doing this other than just, uh, you know, expanding your horizons for some, you know, abstract reason. There's, and, and it's also age based in that mm. you're more susceptible to RSI. The older you get, and it's good for you to switch from using your mouse and keyboard as your day job to something which doesn't require the same muscles. Yeah. Um, Rockstar games might be a good fit for this, actually. Red Dead, possibly. Yeah, although, although Red Dead's I don't know. The, if the, the controls, controls are so weren't mad, mad. like yeah. that's the thing is it's it's like. Good Am to- I going to shoot? Am I going to reload? Who knows? <laughs> Am I going to say hello? <laughs> Am I going to kill my horse? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but at least in that way, you know it wasn't your fault. You'd have a really good thing to blame. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> uh, next question comes from Luke, uh, who writes, Hello. I visited Bath a few years ago with my wife. It's a lovely town, and we very much enjoyed our stay. However, one thing in particular stood out to us. It's quite small. Ooh. We planned to meet a friend all the way across town, uh, from near the botanical gardens to wow, Bath Station. Wow, five minutes away? <laughs> yeah, exactly. To Bath Station. And ended up getting there far too early, as we'd both missed the scale of the map in the Airbnb. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Coming from Sydney, Australia, across town, uh, means anything from between 30 to 90 minutes of travel, depending on the destination. So to my question, do you think coming from a small town has made you more susceptible to suffer from big town syndrome in RPGs? Are city slickers from New York, London, or Sydney better prepared to tackle virtual metropoli? Uh, cheers, Luke. I mean, I grew up in London, so no. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up in Birmingham. <laughs> Which are big, big actual cities. Yeah. I mean, Bath's only a city by dint of its... Having what, a cathedral. cathedral. Yeah. yeah. I'm not even... Ch- Actually, I learned the other day that apparently this is not actually... A true way of judging a city. Oh, Apparently, yeah. there are plenty of cities which do not. Also, Bath is not a cathedral, which is the other reason. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's an abbey. That's an abbey. Yeah, that's yeah. Um, but it's that, that's an arbitrary uh, designation that has been contradicted many times throughout history. Uh-huh. Um, but besides that, um, Bath is just a very, very small place, yeah. really. Yeah, I mean, it's I like, an outlying like urban area, but its its central hub is really compact, and that's which is why I like it. Yes, yeah, I mean, Bath is like the same size as a largish video game town. Oh yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, so, there'd be invisible walls somewhere along London Road and, you know, <laughs> the Upper Bristol Road. Yeah, right, Road, yeah. But- well, all those buildings you can't go in. Yeah. Like that. <laughs> um, yeah. but, you know, I think, I think it's, it's like, uh, it's probably it's got a, a Baldur's Gate amount of content in it. It's a, it's a Left 4 Dead map, probably. Left 4 Dead 2 yeah. map. Yeah, big Left 4 Dead map. It's a good Left 4 Dead map. Yeah. I think you could do several Left 4 Dead maps in BAP. In BAP. <laughs> maps and maps as we call it <laughs> i don't I'm, I'm thinking about that central heart literally heart-shaped area which is the, mm. uh, the kind of the bathroom where london road kicks in to where the lower bristol road is yeah is. right you know that 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 is that is about that descent from mm. those heights to um you know i managed to get lost uh that in that direction the other night how very drunk <laughs> oh, oh, we did well, get real real lost <laughs> <laughs> but one way's down <laughs> yeah i know i know just i was looking for a particular pub and we just Aww. couldn't find it where are you going the bell which i know really oh, well yeah, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's it was a, a wow. bad how do you feel next day not well <laughs> <laughs> not well not well Trouble with it's big a good town. job I didn't find the bell, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Trouble with big town syndrome, it's not like 
the actual distance that you walk. It's the sheer number of people you have to fucking talk to about yeah. every aspect of their life. I tell you what, Bath on a Saturday gives me Big Town Syndrome. Uh, maybe that's it, yeah. There's too many encounters. Like, yeah, because Big Town Syndrome is, is, you're right, it's determined by the amount of tasks you're being given mm. and the possibilities afforded by them. Hmm. Um, I think living in any town, big or small, for long enough teaches you to pay attention to only what you need to. Yeah. To survive. Uh, whereas <laughs> it might be, I think maybe Big Town Syndrome is probably a bit like, it's more like arriving in the town that you're going to go to uni in. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Or something like that, where it doesn't really matter how big the town is. Like, it's both the actual possibility space and the sense of the possibility space that makes you afraid. Yeah, I, I see it more as a, like um, a stealth or maybe hitman challenge where you go into Bar City Center and you try to avoid meeting other people you know. Uh, that's... That's really where the fear comes in is that you're going to have to have an awkward conversation with somebody you worked with seven years ago at Future Publishing and vaguely know. Oh man, that would be an incredible thing to drop in like the third sequel of an RPG series. Like any given town, you could get pulled into a conversation with a companion character from game one <laughs> and they will just want to ask how you are. And you're like, yeah, it's right. Like, what are you up to? <laughs> <laughs> you. Um, <laughs> It is small though. Uh, the next question comes from not this one because it's a press release <laughs> that I clicked on by accident. The next one comes more accurately from David who writes, hi all there's been a metaphysical mishap and now there are no more games. What sort of job do you get next and how do your games industry skills help you to succeed? Take care. David. There are no more games. I presume this means we're living in a universe where games did exist. They haven't just sort of been erased as a concept mm. from reality. Maybe a historian, someone who curates a rarely visited museum of Prior- ancient technology. Before the event. Before the event. <laughs> we had Pac-Man and Bioware games. And Army of Two. <laughs> <laughs> Those were the two games. <laughs> Wow, imagine the entire museum dedicated to Arby of Two. Exactly. Oh, fucking hell. <laughs> well, I think there's a place in Birmingham. <laughs> <laughs> there was once, but no more. Um, I would probably, I mean, the real answer is I'd probably end up teaching. And I think my experience in the games industry would have taught me a lot about toxic behavior as it manifests in teenage boys. Mm. And that is probably going to be of some use. I think I don't know what I would do about anything otherwise other than sort of recognize a certain animus. Don't know how useful that would be. Mm. I don't know what the silly answer to this is. I don't know. There is a silly answer. It's just that I would use the skills that I have to do other things (laughs) (laughs) like drawing for other kinds of money or writing for other kinds of money. Mm. Mm. Right. It's not that, it's not that alien an industry, right? I mean, one of the things yeah, that really describes right. games is that they are, um, they are really composite creative efforts in which yeah. all of the things that go into them exist elsewhere. There's writing in them, there's coding in them, and there's, you know, cinematic experiences and music and all these other things. And if you contribute to any one of those, you can probably do that somewhere else. Yeah. And game design is applicable to basically everything at the end of the day. Yeah. Like, you know, how, how Thanks people to gamification. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and, and also just anyway, like, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's, you don't have to gamify yeah. something for, for 
planning for how people are going to receive information and what decisions they're likely to make or want to make based on that to be a, a relevant factor. <laughs> I think maybe the alienness of the games industry is actually overstated rather a lot nowadays, particularly. I think the, the one thing that is alien to, or, or, you know, defines the games industry apart is that people who are in it tend to be deeply unprofessional, <laughs> which is maybe why uh, they wouldn't be employable elsewhere. But, you know, theoretically, they have skills. It's just yeah. they would be fired pretty It depends. Quickly. I think there's, a, there's an old guard that you come, you bump up against an industry that is very unprofessional, but I find that a lot of new PRs and people <laughs> tend to have a certain right. I think yeah. the other thing, though, is, is it's interesting because unlike other industries, there isn't, like pointedly there isn't a union or a um sort of professional apparatus that requires you to get certain qualifications to be in the industry and obviously in technical disciplines that's going to be less true but even then there's probably no standard mm. you know baseline course or something that people do in order to be in it um which is good to the extent that it keeps the mouth of the pipe open to an extent or at least it's not um i'm not saying the lack of union is good for that reason i'm just saying that the um there isn't like the inertia that can be associated with everyone in the industry needing to know in all cases a particular having done a particular piece of training that then limits the the, the range of thinking that is possible within that kind of business like i think this is particularly true for anyone who's come from a journalism background because games journalists are not trained to think in journalist terms at all or to really esteem things like the ap style guide and things that tend to rule um the um parameters of what can be done in a, an american publication for example and I think that's good, actually. Mm. That's my hot take. <laughs> good to be liberated from that particular set of strictures mm, in terms good. of what you can express. Um, that's nice. And it, but it does mean as well that like games journalists released into the sort of journalism ether as journalists rather than as writers would not have a bunch of kind of, you know, common sets of training or experience mm. that, that may be true elsewhere in, in media. Well, I think not universally why- so, but yeah why we as an industry have struggled to deal with things uh con- controversies which demanded journalistic s- skills journalistic reporting which we we just didn't have within us you know reporting mm. about serious aspects of workplace malfeasance or mm. you know things like gamergate and things like this we yeah, did not just not exist we yeah. did not have the training <laughs> to to do that institutionally it's interesting because i think there are cases where uh, no one had the training. Like, for example, I don't think traditional journalism had the no. answers to something like Gamergate either, pointedly. Like, no. the, what, what it means for a, a, a hate mob to arise online, like, it, it, while game journalism lacked the training from a investigative point of view or, or maybe from a kind of presenting sensitive material point of view, traditional media, as that whole movement bloomed and became a more broadly white supremacist thing in other contexts, um, the media as a whole didn't really know to hand, how to handle you know, online neo-Nazism as a concept, right? Mm. Like, uh, or trolling as a concept. Whereas actually the games press were better, more familiar with the kinds of bad behavior that could arise from a anonymized online community just by virtue of experience. But no one had the full skill set to, I don't know how, how you even handle quote unquote something like that, but the whole thing was sort of pinned through a lack of coverage on one end and mm-hmm. some cases the wrong kind of coverage on the other and, you know, etc. Yeah, it's important not to, overrate actual like real journalism <laughs> yeah right uh, but also because you know um so much of like games industry news is entertainment churn yeah so, so is actual journalistic news like for sure um it's easy to think of all journalism as being like poor foot award winning stuff but actually the reason why that <laughs> yeah why that award exists is because it's so unusual and so difficult and time-consuming and expensive and the vast majority of stuff is press release churn 
um, it's PR that's been reinterpreted as news, like it's, it's the same stuff. Um, I have, I've been worked briefly on various newspapers, like the, the same time pressures are at work yeah. there that, that, that are on entertainment press as well. Um, but at least we get to have fun with words <laughs> and uh, do jokes sometimes, which is right. Well, great. I mean, I think I would say that, that like, I think one nice thing about games media, at least as we experienced it, is that it was, you, it was quite freeing and creative, or it could be, mm. and happened at a particular span of time to, and it, you know, still is to a large extent to be a place where sort of people could learn to be decent entertainment writers. Like you might not let, you know, to be, you know, to be funny or to you know how to create magazine copy that is nice to read. Yeah. Like, and that those skills are not limited to games. It was just that games were so not like overlooked necessarily, but no one was. No one had set out what they had to be or what coverage had to be. So mm. it could be a bunch of different things in different parts of the world. And it taught some people to be tech writers and some people to be comedy writers and some people to be, you know, to be investigative journalists, which absolutely does happen just rarely. Yeah. You know, like the state, the state, that's just nice. Investigative, investigative terms that there's no, like, um, it's obvious to say, but like there's no, um, reason the public should know what the inside of an entertainment company is making. Like there's no, uh, right. there's yeah. no um, Legal defense for just <laughs> spoiling the plans of a private company who are making an entertainment product. Uh, so a lot, a lot of the investigative stuff doesn't really apply to scheduled media releases for the sure. Same way. Yeah, it's right. Just, it, it's been, yeah. You get, there's some really good people like Simon Barkin who pull really interesting stories mm. up. I think sure. Cecilia D'Anastasio as well is kind of the most pointed recent yeah. example of this just being an extremely impactful piece of a process or mm. can be, yeah. can be, but you need the right writer, the right investigator and presumably the same person the right story and the right organization willing to support it yeah that's, that's also you know, massive yeah. yeah is that i mean you've got to be to do that stuff you've got to be willing just to get behind a story that might not ever turn into anything and i know looking at our budgets like we just don't like most gaming outlets just don't have the budget and the higher-ups would think you're insane for pursuing that stuff when the yeah. traffic returns honestly aren't going to justify it um so it's a lot of it's econo- economic as well I think that's the other thing. Um, thinking about what you get from being in games. I think because games are such a composite medium and also such a young medium and because it's such a small industry in some ways, I think you probably get a faster crash course mm. in how business operates or at least in the world mm. of media entertainment than you might do in other fields. Yeah. Like, I agree with that actually. Like, um, you know, you, you're going to sit down with more CEOs as a media, as a journalist, as a developer, you're kind of closer to the, the making of a thing, which is still figuring out how best to organize itself, honestly. Mm. Like, it does feel like if you're paying attention, you do learn how businesses operate and right. how much is, how much money things are really making and yeah. what kinds of, um, management processes actually do work and what don't, what the danger signs are. And good point, actually. Yeah. Man- management processes. Yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> an exciting <laughs> topic. You're talking my language now, <laughs> but it's really true. Like, I mean, I, because games are this really, this, uh, lively intersection of lots of different disciplines. You really see how, I mean, you, you see all the necessities of what it is to manage the intersection of people doing yeah. very different things and colliding a lot of the time. And that is a really, uh, a, a challenge which is applicable to lots of other kinds of industries, I'm sure. Mm. But just managing people, like I never really understood what producers did until I got into the, the, the kind of, uh, the making side of games. And then I realized that they're really fucking useful because you need those people just yeah. to, to manage the, the collision of all these different other kinds of tasks. Right. Well, like, that's the thing. Like my, before I was in games, I was a project manager. 
And now in games, I have a producer title. So like, there's kind of, kind of, and all those skills are being used again, but right. they definitely improved during my time at PC Gamer and other places. Like, mm. and if I were to leave games, I think I would still probably want to be a producer, I think, of something. Like, I just don't know For what. For sure. Because it's actually kind of, it is interesting. And I do enjoy the intersection of disciplines and mm. things. And I don't know. It's good. It's games good, are all right, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the industry, like the industry has many, many problems, but actually as a, a place to learn things. It's not, it's certainly not cubbyhole. Yeah, please don't stop them. Please, I hope they don't all vanish. No, that'd be awful. <laughs> <laughs> I'd have to get a real job. <sighs> That's all the, uh, um, metaphysical ruminations we've got time for. If you'd like to send us a quandary or indeed a question for a future episode of the podcast, you can do so by emailing us at questions dot fuck. <laughs> yeah, email just... that, see what happens. <laughs> see who gets that mail. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> questions from Sorry, questions. Sorry, was that part of the URL or? No, no, I was distracted because you were pointedly like going to sleep on your microphone. (laughs) I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. No, sorry, it was was quite sweet. It was like time, you know, it was like pods over, sleeping time. Time to die. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You were battying out on me. Um, you can email us at questions at creightoncrowbar.com. You can also tweet us at creightoncrowbar and, uh, find our community on Discord, the link for which is on our website, creightoncrowbar.com. We have the YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash create and crowbar. And thanks as ever to our Patreon supporters, uh, who give small amount of money each, every episode and make whole podcast nice. Hmm. <laughs> it's, it's lovely. That's patreon.com forward slash create and crowbar. I forgot if we decided to never do Twitter handles again. It's not. It's just our names. Okay, cool. Uh, if you wondered which voice this was, it's me, Chris Thurston. Hello, Chris. Thanks. I'm Marsh Davis. Die and Tom Senior. Lovely. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Individually? Ma. Oh. Ma.